Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. In this episode, we talk with New York University Professor of Sociology and Environmental Studies, Colin Gerald about his excellent new book, The Global Pigeon. We discuss the social meaning attached to animals, how nature shapes our lives, efforts to control the wild, and the professionalization of pigeon racing. Thank you for joining us today. Sure, glad to be back. The topic of your research is a fascinating one, and I'm sure you're used to the question of why pigeons, but perhaps we can start there. So how did you decide to study this topic? Sure. Um, So when I was a very early graduate student, I think in my second year of grad school, I took Mitchell Denier's ethnography class at the City University of New York, and we had to pick a project and so I, was, I knew I was vaguely interested in, in public space. And so I, foc- I focused on a couple parks in Greenwich Village that I hung out in, and, and they were going to be renovated. And so I thought looking at a space that's going to be renovated gives me an opportunity to see how people sort of use public space, how they, you know, what their dreams and hopes for it are in the revision, in the, in the process of renovation, uh, whose vision wins out, who loses, who's seen as legitimate stakeholders or not. And so I started hanging out in a lot of these parks and going to community board meetings and talking to block associations and everyday visitors to the parks. And one of the things that I just really hadn't anticipated that was a major talking point, point of concern, way that people interacted and experienced the space was pigeons. Mm-hmm. Um, that particularly in a place called Father Demo Square, which is quite small, less than a tenth of an acre, but yet has hundreds of pigeons that live there because people fed them regularly they're a major feature of this space. You can't really use that space and not have some kind of interaction with them. And there were people who came every day and fed the birds regularly. They were successful at kind of begging people or coaxing people to feed them through these begging behaviors. And, and then there were these big signs, though, that said, do not feed the pigeons. And uh, the city was cracking down on pigeon feeding and issuing nuisance citations. And when I was talking to a lot of people in, uh, like at the community board meetings who were complaining about problems of the park, Many of them complained about pigeons and homeless people in the same way. And they would say, you know, if we could just get rid of these pigeons and these homeless people, wouldn't these be great public spaces? And so I thought that there was just really something like that, even though I'm a sociologist, I actually resisted the pigeons at first. But as I started writing up some papers about uh, originally just about these urban spaces for the ethnography class, I said, you know, I can't really write about these spaces and how people experience them if I don't write about pigeons. And, um, and so that's kind of how it started. And, and what it led to was, um, you know, particularly this connection between pigeons and homeless people and this kind of sense that pigeons were dirty and filthy and somehow symbolized disorder. Um, that's what led me to write what eventually became this article, How Pigeons Became Rats, um, about, about why it is that we hate pigeons and what that says about the way we think about nature in the city. And so that's what really started all of this. Um, I'll just close out by saying that what really kind of made me decide to move forward with an entire book or project about pigeons was once I started thinking about them, I started paying more attention to, I lived in Bushwick, Brooklyn at the time, and from my rooftop I would see six or seven stocks of pigeons, hundreds of them in each stock, circling, and I knew that there was men, that these were bred by people. I knew a bit about this this working class kind of male subculture because it has a long history in New York, but now I was sort of like, you know, what's the deal with these guys? The city's trying to crack down on pigeons and make it illegal to feed them, but these guys are breeding them. 
and flying them. And so I kind of, out of curiosity, I started to get to know them. And once I kind of, once I realized there was this really fascinating story, both about how they experienced the urban ecology through their birds, but also how this was traditionally an ethnic white uh, practice that they passed on to Puerto Ricans and blacks as the neighborhoods changed over. That's when I really kind of felt like there's a lot that I can do through human animal relations and even particularly through pigeons. And so that's, that's how it started. In the introduction of the book, you spend a little bit of time focusing on the rich and forgotten history of pigeons. And I found this to be very fascinating. Uh, could you spend a little time uh, telling the readers about this arc from celebrated to bred to uh, even despised? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, pigeons are believed to be the first domesticated bird and perhaps one of the first domesticated animals somewhere between five and 10,000 years ago. And there's a lot of things that they're useful for. So, you know, you can eat their meat and it was once quite popular to eat their meat, although, you know, you'll still find it, particularly in French cuisine, squab is pigeon. Okay. Uh, and also, also their, uh, their feces, guano, was a valuable fertilizer and you could eat their eggs as well. And so people started, you know, people originally started keeping pigeons. It seems like as soon as civilization started, as soon as people settled down in in places and started to grow grains or what have you, pigeons started eating the grain and nesting in, you know, mud and stone walls or ledges that people built because their natural habitat is is cliff faces. And so there's this long history and basically people discovered when they, you know, once they started breeding them for, for their fertilizer and their meat that they have this homing ability and the people think this was probably discovered by accident. Perhaps I buy pigeons from you at a market. I take them home to eat them, but I, I let, you know, I kind of let them walk around the yard and then they fly back to where they came from. And so, you know, they realized they had this capacity. And so this of course led to them um, being used as messengers. And so, the, you know, the, all the, all the early postal services were pigeons. They can fly back from somewhere they've never been up to 500, 700, even a thousand miles. And so, so this has led to a fantastic proliferation, which Darwin was really interested in and wrote about in The Origin of Species, because there are more breeds of pigeons that all originate from one source, the rock dove, than there are breeds of dogs. And that incredible variation, I mean, there's some of them that are incredibly elongated, right? They're super thin and have long legs. There's other ones that are fat and stout. There's ones that can fly long distances. There's ones that can fly into the heavens almost, like that can fly really high. And that all of these variations were brought about through, uh, through breeding. Through, and so you can learn a lot about – so there are particular countries and even regions of countries that are famous for their own breeds. And so you know, these different breeds of pigeons tell you a lot about the societies, the, you know, the tastes of societies where people decided to create these different breeds. And so, you know, there's this really long history. And that was something that actually came up when I got to know these Turkish immigrants in Berlin who kept pigeons because they were keeping breeds in some instances that had a lineage of one to 2,000 years in Turkey. And this history was very important to these immigrants because they saw them as Turkish birds and as a way to connect to their culture. Um, and so, you know, there's this long history of this. And so pigeons have been brought around the world and have thrived in places where they're not from. So pigeons are not domestic to the United States, nor to most of Europe. And they were brought as a food source. But the thing is, is once we started producing chickens on a mass scale, chickens can get fatter quicker than pigeons. And so they're cheaper, they're more efficient. And so chickens started to win out as, as the sort of main uh, poultry bird that we consumed. And so pigeons became less useful for that. 
And then, um, you know, we replaced their guano as fertilizer with nitrogen fertilizer in most places. Again, it's about efficiency. And so what you have is these birds that actually thrive. They do better around people in the built environment. You know, they adapt to live around people. They do better than they ever did in their native habitat. So they're thriving, but they're kind of like our historical detritus now. They're not useful to us. They're not native to the United States. And so we, they, they now just kind of confront us as these nuisances um, even though we've created them. And I argue that they, they kind of stand out as nuisances because particularly in cities, we like our relationships with nature to be manicured and controlled, right? The, the well-sculpted garden or park, the tree encased in concrete. And pigeons, because they naturally are ground feeders and prefer cliffs and stone, they actually prefer concrete and window ledges to grasses and shrubs. So they're in our face. They trespass on spaces that we define as for people only. They really seem like this, uh, the ultimate inspiring urbanite where they're, they're <laughs> tough, they adapt, no one really wants them around, but they still manage to get by and keep reproducing. <laughs> yes, yeah, I think, I think that's right. Um, so you divide the book into three sections. Um, the first one was the pedestrian pigeon, the second one was the totemic pigeon, and then the final part was deep play. And I'd like to focus on the third section, but I was wondering before we go to that, if you could just give the readers a, a short preview of what you did um, so they have a sense of what's in the book. Absolutely. Um, so the first, the part one, the pedestrian pigeon, I mean, the idea here is that, um, you know, pigeons are, and many other animals like uh, sparrows, starlings, squirrels, uh, are pedestrian in both of the meanings. They're, they, they literally walk around on the street, right, like pedestrians mm-hmm. do. And they're everyday mundane urban critters, right? So that they're, it's, they're among the most common or the most pedestrian that you would see. And so in the first part of the book, I focus on street pigeons and the role of street pigeons in the built environment. And here, really, this stems from what I told you about the way I opened up this whole project in Greenwich Village and Father Demo Square, where pigeons were a part of the street scene and a part of the way that people experienced the city, whether they enjoyed feeding the birds or whether they saw them as a nuisance. And so in the first section of the book, so it's all about urban street pigeons and how we experience the built environment and public space through them. Okay. Um, part two, the totemic pigeon, I think the name there gives you a hint at what I'm up to. Um, I'm now really interested in the, in the same way that Durkheim and Levi Strauss were, in the way that um, our relationships with animals actually shape and reflect our relationships to other people and the way that animals become symbols for social relations. And so this helps... On the one hand, it just sociologically, I don't think we think a lot about how human-animal relations can actually shape social relations or the social mm-hmm. self, if you will. Um, and then on the other hand, it, it just it shows the power of the social context to shape the meaning that we make out of these relationships with animals. All right, let's move on to uh, section three. I do recommend to all the listeners to check out the book because there's a lot of really good ethnographic detail in those sections. Uh, it, it was really enjoyable to read. Thank you. So in section three, you follow two rather different communities organized around pigeon racing. Um, the first was the regional Bronx Club, um, and then the second was the international community that came together around the million-dollar pigeon race held in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So let's start by talking about the Bronx pigeon racers. Who are these people, and what do they do? Sure. So now pigeon racing is different. So the guys that I talked about in part two of the book, they're not racing pigeons. They are... Um, they basically just breed them and then they train them to fly in tight-knit stocks. They kind of circle like a swarm of bees, if you will. Yeah. And, that, and that they just kind of – it's the, the pleasure of can, can, you know, training the birds to fly as a unit. 
And if they're lucky, they may catch other people's pigeons. Uh, their stock mixes with other people's stocks and they bring the birds back down. But pigeon racing, this is probably, I mean, some listeners may be familiar with pigeon racing. But the idea here is that be, you use the homing ability of pigeons. They can fly, you can take them to a place they've never been and through their ability to sense electromagnetic radiation as well as to see ultraviolet light and use the sun as a compass in a more sophisticated way, they can find their way home from somewhere they've never been hundreds of miles. And so the idea here then is that you can, in the Bronx, these men can put their pigeons on a truck and the truck can drive to Virginia and they can release the pigeons and the pigeons will fly home four to 500 miles and generally do it in one day, in a single day. And so that's what these guys are doing. And, uh, and so they're using a breed of pigeon called a homing pigeon. And, um, so the way that it works then is that you, you, know, you want to race the birds, but it can't be the case that the first bird home wins because if you live in the South Bronx and I live in the North Bronx and the birds are flying from Virginia, your birds are going to fly slightly less than my yeah. birds, right? So the way that they get around this is that it's the fastest pigeon measured by yards per minute. It's velocity. And so there's a measurement from the starting point. Uh, where the birds are released to my coop, and everybody has exact you know, GPS measurements so they know the distance. And so it's distance by time to get velocity, mm -hmm. right? So, so my birds may have to fly two miles further, but they're probably not going to get that much more tired. And so they still, if they're the faster, you know, if they have the yeah. better velocity, they can still win. So that's what they do. So to race in the club then, you have to be within the borders of the Bronx. So this necessarily makes it a parochial club, right? Mm -hmm. You can't race in the club unless you have a pigeon coop in the Bronx, and almost everybody keeps the pigeon coop on the roof or of where they live. Okay. So it very much is a club where men have grown up and stayed in the neighborhood. In most instances, their fathers and even grandfathers were members of this club. And so it's kind of a very parochial club where everybody is not only racing against one another, but are also generally neighbors. Um, and, and so, the, and you didn't see any women, so no women were involved in the club. I did meet two women, both of whom, not in this club, but in New York City, both of whom um, got into it because their husbands were pigeon racers, and they basically roped them in. Um, I do write in other parts of the book about how it is that the men work to kind of keep this a masculine activity and kind of protect it as a masculine act. But no, generally it's, it's men. So these men, and they're, they're almost all of them are working class, um, although they, they tend to be a little bit higher economic status than the rooftop flyers. I mean, the rooftop flyers that I talk about in part two, I mean, sometimes are very low wage laborers, like nine to $15 an hour. Whereas pigeon racing, I mean, you have to you have to train the birds every morning. You drive them 50, 100 miles, which just costs a lot of gas money. Uh, there's race entry fees or whatever. So it costs more money. And so generally the, the modal uh, pigeon racer in where I was had is, had has or is retired from a city job. Sanitation, policemen, firemen. So sort of blue-collar union people. Although, again, like the rooftop guys, a variety of ethnicities. Older people, ethnic white, but there also were – a number of Hispanic and African-American men involved in this as well. And so, so generally they gather at the club, they hang out, drink coffee, watch the Yankees if, the, if a game is on, pack their birds in a truck, and then the truck drives off to Ohio or Virginia, wherever the race start is. Um, and then uh, the, the next day, the men wait on the rooftops for the birds to come home. Because when the birds fly home, uh, they don't actually – the way that their time is clocked is when they come into the coop, there's an electronic band on their leg 
that is scanned by an electronic clock that the guys keep in the coop. And so, but their time isn't marked until they, until their, the clock senses the electronic band. So sometimes when pigeons come home, they like sit on the roof or they fly around for a while yeah. <laughs> and the guys can lose valuable time. So they wait on the rooftop and devise all sorts of strategies to bring them home. They may um, bring out their mate. So, you know, like if it's a male pigeon, they'll bring out their female mate and like show it to them so that they'll come in. Yeah. Uh, you know, they have various strategies. And so then they bring, and then they bring their clocks back down to the, to the club and they, br- they put, bring all the clocks together and see, you know, who won. And sometimes the guys will put down little wagers on it. Um, but generally, you know, generally that's what they do. And that's, that's, that's what pigeon racing is. So to engage in this activity requires large amounts of time, uh, at least some money. Yes. And uh, what seems like a, a good amount of emotional energy invested in the birds. So why are they doing this? What what's the seduction or appeal of this activity? Yeah, that, that's a, you know, that's the question I struggled to answer. The things that I think immediately spring to mind are competition and money, right? I mean, people yeah. people like to win, people like to compete against other particularly historically masculine culture is competitive and so and obviously if you talk to any one of these guys, none of them want to be a donator, which is what they call people who uh, enter the race and pay their racing dues, but never win. Right? Like you don't want to be a donator. Yeah. So everybody has some kind of competitive element, and this it can express himself through this. A lot of these guys actually started out like the guys that I write about in part two, just kind of breeding pigeons on the rooftop, but were then drawn into the comp- competition. And there is a chance to win money. They do. You know, there is some money laid out for bets. Um, but what I try to argue in the book is that. It cannot be reduced to competition or money. Um, most men wager very little money, and most men break even at best. And the goal is to kind of not be in the red by the end of the racing season, not really to clean up. Um, and so, what it is? So then, I really tried to go deeper into what is it that you know that compels these people. And this is what I love about ethnography because the only way you really discover this is to be there and is to participate in it. Um, and so. You know, and so what I argue in the book is that, um, you know, it, that basically they pigeon racing offers an opportunity to um, really engage in, you know, to really kind of personally invest and engage in nature versus nurture. So you take these birds, you breed them, and then you train them. And so what all of this is about is trying to control nature, right? To get the perfect breed, and then through training. Um, and through and they they have all kinds of means to try to bring the birds home quicker. So, for instance, um, both male and female sit on eggs. But so, if you race a pigeon that's sitting on eggs, it will hope you. The reasoning is it will try to get home as quickly as possible to get back to its eggs, even though actually the other mate is sitting on the eggs, and so you're not actually you know endangering the babies being born. But so you you figure out you kind of try to un- figure out and unlock the secrets of nature, and then use them to your advantage. To get the pigeon to do something that it doesn't want to do. Now, it's not that the pigeon doesn't want to come home, but pigeons are, um, if you want to call them herd animals, they generally, when they release the birds, the birds would prefer to fly together because it's kind of like a a herd defense, right? In the same way that zebras against lions, if you're one bird out by yourself, you're more prone to being caught by some kind of predator. And so the birds don't want to break away from the group, but the men want them to break away from the group, right? So they engage in all these strategies to try to triumph, if you will, over nature, right? But but on the other hand, there's all sorts of elements that they can't control. Once the birds are in the in the air, as one guy said to me, they're in God's hands, right? And that 
and that there's all sorts of things that you can't control. You don't even actually watch the birds. This is over hundreds of miles. Storms can prevent them from coming home or going down. There's hawks that, are, that may catch them. Um, some of the pigeons may just decide to go down and join street pigeons, you know, and, yeah. and not, not want to come home. And so you kind of open yourself up to um, the possibility of, of, of being vulnerable and, of, uh, you know, to, to sort of the vicissitudes of nature. But when your bird comes home, you know, it's kind of this triumph over nature that you you put your bird out there and every time it comes home, I argue in the book that it really is kind of um, as magical as it seems to the person who doesn't really know a lot about pigeons. Like, wow, that seems amazing. A pigeon can come home. Someone's never been 600 miles. The guys actually phenomenologically experience it this way too. When you sit there and they see their bird come over the horizon even if their bird doesn't have a chance for first place anymore, you know, their mouth gets dry, they start shaking, there's this very, like, the adrenaline is rushing, and when the bird comes home, there's just this sense that they did it. They, they beat the odds, they, they triumphed over nature, and so, so I argue that really on that level, on that visceral level, um, you know, they, that th this is what draws them in, because many of the guys, as I said, even if they put no money down on the race, or even if the race is already over, like they know that enough birds came home that they're not going to win, but their birds haven't come home, they're still up there. They're still waiting, and they still feel that excitement when the bird comes home. And so that is what leads me to rule out the idea that you can just say that it's about money or competition yeah. or something else. And when, when they talk about the experience, um, they don't frame it as just enjoying nature, right? They always talk about it more as the triumph or struggle against it. Um, is that, a, is that a fair characterization? That is a fair characterization. I mean, so, so I mean, one of the things, I, and I write about this in the book, but, um, you know, when I first started hanging out with these guys who fly pigeons, what my kind of um, romantic idea that I had, as I write in the book, was this was their um, kind of Thoreau's cabin on Walton Pond. This, yeah. was their, this was their escape from the concrete jungle. This was their opportunity to kind of bond with nature. And what I found instead was, men who in general had no other interest in nature, they didn't camp or didn't, yeah. you know, weren't really interested, um, you know, in forming more relationships with nature more generally. They didn't necessarily see it as an escape. It was more that they went to the rooftop with little bits of nature's raw material and delighted in their ability to sculpt it according to their own whims, right? Um, but what I will say, and actually this is important about ethnography, the men, I didn't come up with this argument about this kind of seduction of triumphing over nature by the men telling me I like to triumph over nature. Rather, it came out through me observing the way that they talked about pigeon flying and what it is they actually did in ways that were only indirectly about the argument I was making. So yeah. for instance, for instance, I, I talked about how the men obsessed over um, – all sorts of strategies to try to uh, like so for instance when the guys talk about well I've got my I'm racing birds sitting on eggs that they do this and the kind of the satisfaction and even like they're, they're very much not only in, in, in coming up with clever strategies so other people will 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 do their own little strategies they'll make these cocktails of different herbs and you know to try to and, and then if it works they'll say like you know look at what I've discovered you know and I think and they'll talk about genetics and, and training and say you know I think I understand genetics and this and that and so it wasn't them saying I can beat nature and that's what I like but it was coming out of the conversations that that I realized that all of them were about this notion of trying to unlock the secret of genetics or the secret of nature 
and that, or the, or it may be that the way they would try to um, talk about, uh, you know, talk about weather predictions, and if the weather prediction was bad, um, ways that they would try to sort of, you know, wish for a better outcome, and then if their bird came home through a storm, that that was like as exciting as it gets, that their bird didn't wait till the rain went away the next day, and so that there was an extra sort of added excitement and pride when the pigeons came through a rainstorm or something like that, and that's what led me to to this argument. So, so very few of the guys said, I, you know, I like controlling nature or beating nature, but it was what came out through me observing their more natural conversations or their reactions to their birds coming home. Let's go to South Africa now and talk about a race that I'm sure will come as a, a surprise to the majority of our listeners. I know I had no idea that something of that scope existed. Um, so what is the million dollar pigeon race? So the million dollar pigeon race, as the, the title alludes to, it's a race now, the winner gets, at last I checked, the winner of the race gets $200,000. They don't get a million, but a million is the total payout. So the second place winner, we get $120,000, uh, you know, and so on and so forth down the line. And so this is a race. So in the past, and I'll, I'll start out too by saying why it is I went to South Africa. So in the Bronx, it's very much a kind of blue collar activity. Uh, they, call, they call pigeon racing uh, the poor man's horse racing. And so there very much is this idea that it's cheap, you know, anybody can build a simple coop and get some birds and, and, and compete. And so, but one of the things I noticed happening was this drive toward professionalization, that the guys, some, some of the guys started buying pedigree birds from someone else. Um, and, you know, and, and, then, and then they started putting on races where the cash prize was, was a little bit higher instead of just racing for trophies or certificates. And a lot of the guys complained about this, even though they were participating in it. And so I wondered what it was that was, that was driving this push toward professionalization. And I realized that um, the drive was that there was now competition. Um, so that if you are, so, you know, as I said, if you want to race in the Bronx club, you have to live in the Bronx. And so, and then you're limited to who you can compete against the other people in the Bronx, but that over the past 20 years, one thing that has cropped, started to crop up, particularly in the past 10 years is these so-called one loft races, these international races where the idea is instead of you raising and training your own birds and then only racing against other people in the same geographic area as you, you, you can send your pigeon as a, as a baby, as a juvenile, to whether it's Vegas or South Africa. South Africa is where the million-dollar pigeon race is. That's where I went, Sun City, and I'll get to that in a moment. So you, you, you send your pigeon as a youngster there, and then it's raised by somebody else and trained by somebody else. And the idea is that if the pigeon imprints on that place as its home, then, then that, it will consider that its home and fly home to there as opposed to flying all the way. So the pigeons in South Africa aren't flying back to New York or Germany yeah. or wherever the people are from, <laughs> right? And so what I realized is that once with these so-called one loft races, the reason why they're called that is lofts are what some of the guys call their coops. Instead of every pigeon flying home to a distinct loft, that is, which is where the owner lives, they all fly home to one place, right? And so now... Um, with the rise of the one loft races, some people hold back their best pigeons or what they think might be their best pigeons, bred out of their best birds, and send them to these international races because there's bigger prize money. And so local clubs like the Bronx actually have to come up with ways to try to entice their members to keep racing in their clubs 
lest their membership just dwindle because people send their best birds to these one loft races. And so I went to the Million Dollar Pigeon Race because the guys in the Bronx were talking about it. And it's the biggest of the one loft races. And a lot of the guys in the Bronx kind of saw it as the antithesis of the craft because because what it is is you send your bird there, but somebody else trains it. Somebody else raises it. And when it flies home, you're not, you can't be up on the rooftop in South Africa helping corral it in. And so to them, there's kind of this very kind of like craftsman mentality about pigeon flying, right? That like it's a skilled job. It's a, or a hobby and that, you know, that you, that, and that the men kind of take pride in, in learning and knowing the craft. Yeah, and you but lose here, that, and you lose yeah. that, that intimacy or that emotional connection with the bird too, right? Exactly, right. When the bird comes home, it's not your home to begin with and you didn't raise it. You just sent it as a juvenile and so you didn't personally oversee its development in every day for six months to a year. And so you've outsourced it to somebody else. And so I went to the Sun City, which is the South Africa equivalent of Las Vegas. It's a huge uh, casino, fantasy land kind of area. And, um, and people from around the world, from 28 countries, sent pigeons. Um, and, and, but anybody can go there. And that's the thing too is, so also you don't even have to be a pigeon racer to participate. If I wanted to, so there are people who will sell shares of a bird. It costs a thousand dollars per pigeon to enter the race. And if I want to, I can pay a thousand dollars to a pigeon breeder and he will enter a bird on my behalf. So Sun City also brings all sorts of people who actually are not pigeon racers, but just like the Kentucky Derby, you know, you can bet on a pigeon, uh, people that just kind of have some kind of rooting interest. And, and it's, it was very bizarre. I mean, after, you know, being waiting on the rooftop with guys in the Bronx, we all sat in an indoor arena with stadium seating and there is these jumbotron TVs. And, and what they do is they have a video cameras on the pigeon loft, which is about a mile away, but you're not allowed to be at the pigeon loft to watch them because it may scare the birds coming in. And we basically sit there in an arena uh, thousands of us, about 5,000 of us waiting for the pigeons to come home, uh, on a video screen and, uh, you know, and, and everybody's put money down and, uh, and the pigeons, you know, when they, when the pigeon comes down, they, they walk across the threshold and then it comes up on the video screen who the winner was. How long would people be waiting in the stadium? Uh, well, again, I mean, like in New York, the race only takes one day and generally, you know, for instance, if you know, it takes on average about eight hours for the race you don't have to get there in the morning. You know yeah. it's not going to come to the afternoon. But again, it was a big commercial affair. So there was um, in the stadium they had set up vendors selling all sorts of you know pigeon magazines or million dollar pigeon race gear. Uh, there was a restaurant set up so you could buy food, and so you know, or you could go and visit. Um, you could go and you know a lot of people could just gamble and do other things. So you know there was I would say there was a couple thousand people that were there the whole day just because then people hang out with other pigeon fanciers and they had guest speakers, uh, people who were famous within the pigeon world who talked about their techniques or what have you. Uh, they had a band entertaining people and then but about then like two two to three hours before the birds might come in is when it really started to fill up because you never know if the wind is to their backs maybe the pigeons will come home really quickly. So in this section, you drew on the writings of the famous anthropologist Clifford Geertz to talk about the way the event serves as, to quote, a story society tells about itself. What does that mean and what story was being told? Sure. You know, I think probably a a lot, if not most listeners are are familiar with this comes from Geertz's essay, Deep Play. And and specifically what he, you know, what he argues is that he shows how there are all sorts of rules about who can 
you know, who can, it's about cockfighting in Bali, right? And, and, and the idea is that, I mean, one of the things he says is that um, it can, it's not just the case that anybody can put a cock in a, in a ring to fight any other cock, that there are all sorts of rules about who you can fight against and who you can bet for or against that reflect the social hierarchy of society. So if, if, if you have a kinsman, you know, who, who has a, who has a, a rooster in, 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 you know, in a fight, you can't bet against your kinsman. You have to bet with your kinsman, right? And then he also says, for instance, how only people of similar social standing can fight against one another. So it's not the case that a peasant can put in a cock in the ring against a, a local king, right? Or something like that, or some, somebody who's high up on the social hierarchy. So that, you know, so those kinds of social rules about who can fight against who and who can bet with or against who demonstrate the social hierarchy of Balinese society. And that's, that's a part of his basic argument. And so I find that, you, and I think a lot of people generally find that useful. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things that can, uh, can be said to be, uh, cultural representations of, of, of a society. And, um, so, so the question here is, you know, what does, what does the million dollar pigeon race tell us about, um, South African society, but also about globalization, because that's what this is about in part as well. Right. I mean, the reason why I went here is the, the, the emergence of the million dollar pigeon race and races like it is actually impacting places like the local Bronx club and these local clubs who now are, have to compete with them and who now sometimes are losing members, right? And so, and what I found really compelling was um, that in South Africa, you know, this is this is a country still uh, coming out of the shadow of apartheid, and 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 very much um, looking for ways to tell itself and to tell everyone else that it is a diverse, democratic, colorblind society. And one of the things that was just so compelling to me was how salient that narrative came through for something like a pigeon race. So, for instance, I met uh, a number of men who would be classified under the apartheid regime as colored, as not necessarily black, but of a mix, a mix of either of black and white or something else, right? Um, this, this is the category called colored. And, and the, 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 the men who would be, who, and who self-identified as, as well as either colored or black um, told me, you know, they would say, one, they could recall an era where, of course, they were not free under apartheid, but they raised pigeons back then. And so to them, they remember and were very insulted by the fact that there was separate clubs for whites and everyone else. And that even if they had the best birds um, in their club, they were never able to prove that they were the best in South Africa because they could never race against white pigeon fanciers. And so... Through the million dollar pigeon race, I mean, they very clearly narrated this as like, you know, here I can come now and I can I can go up against anybody in the world, and I have the opportunity to choose that I am that to prove that I am the best of the best. And that and that for them, they recognized that there was still sort of um, barriers and discrimination in South Africa, but that one place where to them it really seemed in miniature a meritocracy had been, ha, had actually uh, flourished is in the million dollar pigeon race. Like they would say, I have equal opportunity to beat anybody in this race and I can go up against whites or anybody else. And so this was very much a powerful way that the million dollar pigeon race became meaningful to them. And the organizers of the race, now the organizers of the race didn't explicitly, you know, use this, like say, oh, like, you know, talk about apartheid at all, but they repeatedly emphasized 
the, the, the equality of the race, the equality of opportunity, that this is a, a true meritocracy, that anyone has a chance to beat anyone, that people from around the world, no matter their station in life, have the opportunity to come and compete here. And also, and this also plays out in other ways. And so, for instance, I met some guys who, although pretty much you have to have a fair amount of money to go in this race, there are some relatively blue collar people who may put in one bird. So they'll put in $1,000 in the same way that you might enter Powerball, right? Yeah. And put in a little bit of money and very little chance to win, but you have a chance. And so I would meet blue collar guys that would say, well, you know, um, the Queen of England has pigeons in this race, which is true. The Queen of England has a pigeon loft. Um, she doesn't herself oversee them at all. But so, but so that was very powerful to people, right? That a blue collar person from a small town could race against the Queen of England. Yeah. And so, so very much there was this really strong feeling of egalitarianism and meritocracy that on the one hand, I argue, rang especially sort of true or was deep in South Africa, given the legacy of apartheid. But on the other hand, very much rings with the sort of neoliberal idea of globalization and a flat world. Like that people said, like, oh, you know, um, we've broken down the barriers to the parochial clubs. It used to be that people were only limited to competing against each other in their local clubs. But now we've broken down the barriers and people can compete against anybody and everybody has an equal shot. And so there very much is this kind of feel-good story about globalization and how it levels the playing field. Before we talked about that underlying tension that goes throughout the text uh, where we look where you look at the relationship between the social and the natural or um, the urban and the wild, and I'm wondering, what do we learn from the South African case? Is there, is there something different than with the Bronx racers, which we talked about? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question because um, now I, I do think that the whole book, I play with this tension between the natural and the social. Yeah. But it's not the it's not the, um, the the thrust of my thesis in South Africa. But what I do think it you know the thing about that I argue in the Bronx and and act, and this is through the Bronx. So I want to I play on the tension between the Bronx Club and the Million Dollar Pigeon Race, where what happens if if you go back to what I was telling you about what I argued is the seduction of pigeon racing on a, yeah. on a sort of sensual level. It's the idea that you voluntarily open yourselves up yourself up to be vulnerable to nature. Right. The idea is, is you hope to triumph over nature, but you send your birds out um, on these long stretches where they have to fight against storms and hawks and electromagnetic disturbances and what have you. And that so you actually make yourself vulnerable to being sort of taken in and overwhelmed by nature. And then on the other hand, when you win, you feel that you've taken steps through the craft to kind of, you know, to kind of uh, unlock the secrets of nature and triumph over it. Now, what happens in South Africa is that that kind of enchantment, if you will, is is gone. I mean, in that they've you've outsourced it to somebody else, and in South Africa, because it's such a high stakes, high money affair, it's a division of labor. They hire the best veterinarians; they'll go over the birds. They hire the best trainers. Um, they have different people doing the jobs that used to all be done by one person, the so-called pigeon fancier or racer, that have now been in the Weberian sense, right, divided up to be more efficient and be more rational. And that, and that, in, this, and that in New York, you know, in traditional racing, everybody has their own strategy. Some people swear by having the pigeons sit on eggs. Other people swear by, by like not letting the pigeons mate until right after a race. Other people mix up different elixirs and cocktails of herbs that they think will be the secret and that there's this kind of magic about that, that everybody kind of – but nobody knows. It's never entirely solved, right? But in, in South Africa, um, there's no room for idiosyncrasy. There's one way to do it. It's whatever the, 
the veterinarians and the peer-reviewed literature say is the best way to do it. And so it's very much scientific. It's, it's, it's kind of the triumph of science over the kind of enchantment of magic, if you will. I very much am telling that Weberian story. And so it, it kind of drains it of, of the magic. And at the same time, um, it's not, it doesn't really seem to be experienced by anybody as this kind of wrestling with nature um, and anymore at all. And so, so um, I think I think that's that's what it says. Uh, it, it very much is the the classic Weberian story about disenchantment of the of the world through the division of labor, but applied to uh, a kind of very odd activity and group that we might not expect to see that kind of story play out in. I like to end our podcast with a final broader question. So to conclude our talk, what did the research project? which really pushes up against the edges of conventional sociology, teach you about the discipline and how we actually go about studying the social world? That's a good question. I mean, the one thing I'll say to start out is, uh, I mean, one lesson that it taught me about sociology, I'm happy to say, is that we're a very diverse, open discipline. I actually never expected to uh, have my scholarship wind up in some of the top sociology journals um, or to you know, or to have, or to have the interest of a press like University of Chicago Press in the book, I very much thought that uh, I would be marginalized, and I wasn't. Um, yeah. I was. I very much uh, have felt that many people in sociology have understood and embraced what I'm doing, and so I'm very happy about that. And it it actually reinforced for me. I remember when I chose graduate school, I chose sociology because I felt that. I didn't know what exactly I wanted to focus on, whether it was more politics or culture or economics, but that sociology seemed to be broad enough, you know, the kind of broadest of the social sciences to be able to pursue any of those interests. And I'm happy to say that, um, you know, I may have come along and helped push, but there was many who came before me. I mean, I'm definitely not the first sociologist to write about human-animal relations, but I perhaps have pushed that a little further, but have found that the field was welcome of course, as long as I did certain things, but I would argue did certain things that anybody would have to do to um, get in the general interest journals, for instance, that, um, you know, if I wanted to, if I was going to write about human-animal relations and I wanted people who don't care about animals to pay attention, then um, the job, my job as a sociologist uh, who wants to talk to those people, who do, does believe that there's some kind of unity in the field, even though we're diverse, then I have to demonstrate that and I wanted to demonstrate that relating to animals teaches us something about the traditional things that we care about, community, identity, uh, race, gender, class. And so, um, you know, and those were the things that I really strive to do. And I think that is why I was able to, um, to, 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 to do this and to have the success that I've had at this early stage in my career. Um, but I, I do think that, um, you know, I mean, one of the things that it's, it's taught me is, is, um, is actually, I mean, I taught myself how social animals are. I mean, when I set out to do this project, I didn't actually have this idea that, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to take something like animals and then show um, how they're socially constructed as well, even though we don't think about it. And my goal has always been to do more than to show how animals are socially constructed. I like to go further um, and show how, I mean, how our relationships with animals actually organize the way that we relate to, shape the way that we relate to society and other people. Um, but that said, you know, this project was very much a kind of happy series of accidents and coincidence. And, 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 and that for me, um, when I went into it, I never actually would have thought 
that uh, I never thought myself about the ways that our even intimate personal relationships with animals actually affect the way we relate to other people and can actually organize what Mead would call our social self. And so, um, you know, that, that's something, that's something I think important that, that, that I've really taken away. And on a deeper level, how much, um, non-humans actually organize the social world more generally, which has actually now affected me. I mean, I came to NYU and wound up teaching in environmental studies, uh, based on this project. And I'm now doing research on something that seems very different. Um, I'm, I'm researching fracking and how it's impacting communities in, in rural Pennsylvania, but is related to this broader interest that I've now uh, taken up through the first project, which also relates to actor network theory and, and you know, related ideas like that, about how much um, non-humans, whether that means the built environment or the natural environment or animals, is actually the the sort of scaffolding, um, you know, that the, that that organizes society, but that seems to be missing from most accounts. And I think that that's something more general that I'll take with me, um, you know, through the rest of my career. That was really great. Thank you again for joining us, and hopefully, talk to you again in the future sometime. Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about my book.